Chapter 6 Christ and the Two Thieves And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, To day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 39-43 You know these verses, I suppose. It would be strange if you did not. Few passages in the New Testament are more familiar to our ears. And it's right and good that these verses are well known. They have comforted many troubled minds. They have brought peace to many uneasy consciences. They have been a healing balm to many wounded hearts. They have been a medicine to many sin-sick souls. They have calmed many deathbeds. Wherever the gospel of Christ is preached, they will always be honored, loved, and held in remembrance. I wish to speak to you about these verses. Listen to me while I try to unfold the most significant lessons they teach. I can't see the state of your heart before God, but I can see truths in this passage that no man can ever know too well. Christ is powerful and willing to save. First, we learn about Christ's power and willingness to save sinners. This is the main teaching we can gather from the story of the penitent thief. It teaches you what ought to be music in the ears of all who hear it. It teaches you that Jesus Christ is mighty and able to save. Zephaniah 3.17 Could any man's situation look more hopeless and desperate than this penitent thief's once did? He was a wicked man, a criminal, and a thief, if not a murderer. We know this because those were the people who were crucified. He was suffering a just punishment for breaking the laws, and as he had lived wickedly, so he seemed determined to die wickedly, for when he first was crucified, he insulted our Lord. He was a dying man. He hung there, nailed to a cross from which he was never to come down alive. He no longer had power to move hand or foot. His hours were numbered. The grave was ready for him. There was just a step between him and death. If ever there was a soul hovering on the brink of hell, it was the soul of this thief. If ever there was a situation that seemed lost, gone, and past saving, it was his. If ever there was a child of Adam whom the devil made sure was his own, it was this man. But look what happened. He stopped hurling insults and blaspheming as he had done at first. He began to speak in another manner altogether. He turned to our blessed Lord in prayer. He prayed to Jesus, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Luke 23:42. He asked that his soul might be cared for, his sins pardoned, and himself thought of in another world. Truly, this was a wonderful change. Now notice what kind of answer he received. Some would have said he was too wicked a man to be saved, but it was not so. Some would have guessed it was too late, the door was shut, and there was no room for mercy, but it proved not too late at all. 
the Lord Jesus gave him an immediate answer. He spoke kindly to him, assured him that he would be with him that day in paradise, pardoned him completely, cleansed him thoroughly from his sins, received him graciously, justified him freely, raised him from the gates of hell, and gave him a title to glory. Of all the multitude of saved souls, none ever received so glorious an assurance of his own salvation as did this penitent thief. Go over the whole list from Genesis to Revelation, and you will find none who had these words spoken to them, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke 23:43. The Lord Jesus never gave such a complete proof of his power and will to save as he did on this occasion. In the day when he seemed most weak, he showed that he was a strong deliverer. In the hour when his body was racked with pain, he showed that he could feel tenderly for others. At the time when he himself was dying, he conferred on a sinner eternal life. Now, don't I have the right to say that Jesus is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him? Hebrews 7:25. Here in the story of the thief is the proof of it. If ever a sinner was too far gone to be saved, it was this thief. Yet he was plucked as a brand from the fire. Zechariah 3, 2. Do I not have the right to say that Christ will receive any poor sinner who comes to him with the prayer of faith, and that he casts out no one? John 6, 37. Here is the proof. If ever there was one that seemed too bad to be received, this was the man. Yet the door of mercy was wide open, even for him. Do I not have the right to say that by grace you may be saved through faith, not of works? Fear not, only believe. Ephesians 2, 8-9. Here is the proof of it. This thief was never baptized. He belonged to no visible church. He never received the Lord's Supper. He never did any work for Christ. He never gave money to Christ's cause. But he had faith. So, he was saved. Do I not have the right to say that the youngest faith will save a man's soul if it is true faith? See the proof. This man's faith was only one day old, but it led him to Christ and preserved him from hell. Why then should any man or woman despair with a passage such as this in the Bible? Jesus is a physician who can cure hopeless cases. He can make dead souls alive and call the things that are not as though they were. No man or woman should ever despair. Jesus is still the same now as he was two thousand years ago. The keys of death and hell are in his hand. What he opens, no one can shut. Even though your sins are more in number than the hairs of your head, even though your evil habits have grown with your growth and strengthened with your strength, even though you have hated good and loved evil all the days of your life, these things are sad indeed, but there is hope even for you. Christ can heal you. Christ can cleanse you. Christ can raise you from your low condition. Heaven is not shut to you. Christ is able to admit you if you will humbly commit your soul into his hands. Are your sins forgiven? If not, 
I set before you today a full and free salvation. I invite you to follow the steps of the penitent thief. Come to Christ and live. I tell you that Jesus is full of pity and tender mercy. He can do everything that your soul requires. Scripture, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 1, 18. Why should you not be saved as well as another? Come to Christ by faith and live. Are you a true believer? If you are, you ought to glory in Christ. Don't glory in your own faith, your own feelings, your own knowledge, your own prayers, your own reform, or your own diligence. Glory in nothing but Christ. Even the best of us knows only a little of that merciful and mighty Savior. We don't exalt Him and glory in Him enough. Let us pray that we may see more of the fullness there is in Him. Do you ever try to do good to others? If you do, remember to tell them about Christ. Tell the young, tell the poor, tell the aged, tell the ignorant, tell the sick, tell the dying, tell them all about Christ. Tell them of His power and tell them of His love. Tell them what He does and tell them what He feels. Tell them what He has done for the chief of sinners. Tell them what He is willing to do to the last day of time. Tell them over and over again. Never be tired of speaking of Christ. Say to them broadly and fully, freely and unconditionally, unreservedly and undoubtingly, Come to Christ as the penitent thief did. Come to Christ and you will be saved. Not all are saved in the hour of death. The second lesson we learn from this passage is this If some are saved in the very hour of death, there are others who are not. This is a truth that should never be passed over. It is a truth that stands out plainly in the sad end of the other thief and is too often forgotten. What became of the other thief who was crucified? Why did he not turn from sin and call upon the Lord? Why did he remain hardened and unrepentant? Why was he not saved? It is useless to try to answer such questions. Let us be content to take the fact as we find it and see what it is meant to teach us. We have no right whatever to say this thief was a worse man than his companion. There's nothing to prove it. Both plainly were wicked men. Both were receiving the due reward of their deeds. Both hung by the side of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both heard him pray for his murderers. Both saw him suffer patiently. But while one repented, the other remained hardened. While one began to pray, the other went on yelling. While one was converted in his last hours, the other died a bad man as he had lived. While one was taken to paradise, the other went to his own place, the place of the devil and his angels. Now these things are written for our warning. There is warning as well as comfort in these verses, a very serious warning. These verses tell me, loudly, that though some may repent and be converted on their deathbeds, it does not follow that all will. A deathbed is not always a saving time. They tell me clearly that two people may have the same opportunities of gaining good for their souls, may be placed in the same position, may see the same things and hear the same things, 
yet only one will take advantage of them. Repent, believe, and be saved. The verses tell me, above all, that repentance and faith are gifts of God and are not in our own power. If anyone flatters himself that he can repent at his own time, choose his own season, seek the Lord when he pleases, and, like the penitent thief, be saved at the very end, he may find at the end that he has been greatly deceived. It is good and profitable to keep this in mind. There is an immense amount of delusion in the world on this subject. I see many allowing life to slip away, all unprepared to die. I see many admitting that they ought to repent, but always putting off their own repentance. And I believe one grand reason is that most people suppose they can turn to God just when they like. They twist the parable of the laborer in the vineyard, which speaks of the eleventh hour, and use it as it was never meant to be used. They dwell on the pleasant part of the verses I am now considering and forget the rest. They talk of the thief that went to paradise and was saved, but they forget the one who died as he had lived and was lost. Be careful that you do not fall into this mistake. Look at the history of men in the Bible and see how often these notions I have been speaking of are contradicted. Notice the many proofs that show that two men may have the same light offered to them and only one uses it. And that no one has a right to take liberties with God's mercy and presume he will be able to repent whenever he likes. Look at Saul and David. They lived about the same time, they rose from the same station in life, they were called to the same position in the world, they enjoyed the ministry of the same prophet, Samuel, they reigned the same number of years, yet one was saved and the other was lost. Look at Sergius Paulus and Gallio. They were both Roman governors. They were both wise and prudent men in their generation. They both heard the Apostle Paul preach. But one believed and was baptized, and the other cared for none of those things. Acts 13, 18, 17. Look at the world around you. See what is continually going on. Two sisters will often attend the same ministry, listen to the same truths, and hear the same sermons, yet only one will be converted to God. The other remains totally unmoved. Two friends often read the same religious book. One is so moved by it that he gives up all for Christ. The other sees nothing at all in it and continues on as before. Hundreds have read Doddridge's The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul without profit. But with Wilberforce, it was one of the beginnings of spiritual life. Footnote, Philip Doddridge, 1702-1751, was an English author, hymn writer, and theologian. His book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, is a look at the heart and the journey to faith. It was this book that led William Wilberforce to embrace evangelical Christianity. Thousands have read Wilberforce's A Practical View of Christianity and laid it down again unchanged. But when Leck Ridgmond read it, he became another man. Footnote William Wilberforce, 1759-1833, was a British politician known for his fight to end the British slave trade. His book, A Practical View of Christianity, was an influential book that challenged Christians to live their Christianity in both their private and and public lives.
Leck Richmond, 1772-1827, was an English pastor and author. He wrote several popular books that related to God's work in the lives of local villagers. No one has any justification for saying that salvation is obtained in his own power. I don't pretend to explain these things. I only put them before you as great facts, and I ask you to consider them deeply. You mustn't misunderstand me. I don't want to discourage you. I say these things in all affection only to warn you of danger. I don't say them to drive you back from heaven. Instead, I say them to pull you closer and bring you to Christ while He can be found. I want you to beware of presumption. Don't abuse God's mercy and compassion. I beg you to not continue in sin and think you can repent, believe, and be saved whenever you like, please, will, or choose. I will always set before you an open door, and I will always say that while there is life, there is hope. But if you are wise, you will put nothing off that concerns your soul. If you have them, don't let good thoughts and godly convictions slip away. Cherish them and nourish them, lest you lose them forever. Make the most of them, lest they find wings and flee away. Do you have an inclination to begin praying? Put it into practice at once. Have you had the idea to begin to really serve Christ? Start at once. Are you enjoying any spiritual light? See that you live up to your light. Don't take opportunities lightly in case the day comes when you will want to use them and not be able to. Don't wait lest you become wise too late. Perhaps you may say, it's never too late to repent. That's correct, but late repentance is seldom true repentance. Further, if you put off repenting, you cannot be certain that you will repent at all. You may say, why should I be afraid? The penitent thief was saved. That also is true, but look again at the passage that tells you that the other thief was lost. The Spirit always works in the same way. The third lesson you are meant to learn from these verses is this. The Spirit always leads souls to salvation in the same way. This is a point that deserves particular attention and is often overlooked. People look at the broad fact that the penitent thief was saved when he was dying, and they look no further. They don't consider the evidence this thief left behind him. They don't see the abundant proofs he gave of the work of the Spirit in his heart. I wish to develop these proofs. I wish to show you that the Spirit always works in the same way. Whether he converts a man in an hour, as he did the penitent thief, or whether by slow degrees, as he does others, the steps by which he leads souls to heaven are always the same. Listen to me, and I'll try to make this clear to you. I want you to shake off the common notion that there is some easy royal road to heaven from a dying bed. I want you to thoroughly understand that every saved soul goes through the same experience, and that the leading principles of the penitent thief's conversion were just the same as those of the oldest saint that ever lived. For one thing, see how strong the faith of this man was. He called Jesus Lord. He declared his belief that he had a kingdom. He believed that he was able to give him eternal life and glory, and in this belief he prayed to him.
He asserted that Christ was innocent of all the charges brought against him. This man hath done nothing amiss. Luke 23:41. Others perhaps may have thought the Lord innocent, but none said so openly as this poor dying man did. When did all this happen? It happened when the whole nation had denied Christ, shouting, Crucify him! We have no king but Caesar! John 19:15. When the chief priests and Pharisees had condemned and found him guilty of death, when even his own disciples had abandoned him and fled, when he was hanging, faint, bleeding, dying on the cross, numbered with transgressors, and counted accursed. This was the hour when the thief believed in Christ and prayed to him. Surely such faith was never seen since the world began. The disciples had seen mighty signs and miracles. They had seen the dead raised with a word, lepers healed with a touch, the blind given sight, the dumb made to speak, and the lame made to walk. They had seen thousands fed with a few loaves and fishes. They had seen their master walking on the water as on dry land. They had all heard him speak as no man ever spoke, and hold out promises of good things yet to come. Some of them had a foretaste of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Undoubtedly, their faith was the gift of God, but they still had much to help it. The dying thief saw none of these things. He only saw our Lord in agony, in weakness, in suffering, and in pain. He saw Him undergoing a dishonorable punishment, deserted, mocked, despised, and blasphemed. He saw Him rejected by all the great, wise, and noble ones of His own people. His strength dried up like a pot's herd. Psalm 22, 15 and his life drawn nigh unto the grave. Psalm 88, 3. He saw no scepter, no royal crown, no outward dominion, no glory, no majesty, no power, and no signs of might. And yet the dying thief believed and looked forward to Christ's kingdom. Would you know if you have the Spirit? Then mark the question I ask today, where is your faith in Christ? Second, See what a right sense of sin the thief had. He said to his companion, We receive the due reward of our deeds. Luke 23:41. He acknowledged his own ungodliness and the justice of his punishment. He made no attempt to justify himself or excuse his wickedness. He spoke like a man humbled and humiliated by the remembrance of past sins. This is what all God's children feel. They are ready to admit they are poor, hell-deserving sinners. They can say with their hearts as well as with their lips, We have left undone the things that we ought to have done, and we have done those things that we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. Would you know if you had the Spirit? Then mark my question, Do you feel your sin? Notice also what brotherly love the thief showed to his companion. He tried to stop his insults and blasphemy and redirect his thoughts. Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Luke 23, 40. There is no more certain mark of grace than this. Grace shakes a man out of his selfishness and makes him feel for the souls of others. When the Samaritan woman was converted, She left her water pot and ran to the city, saying, Come, 
See a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? John 4.29. When Saul was converted, he immediately went to the synagogue at Damascus and testified to his Jewish brothers that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 9.20. Would you know if you had the Spirit? Then where is your charity and love to other souls? You see in the penitent thief a finished work of the Holy Spirit. Every part of the believer's character may be found in him. Short as his life was after conversion, he found time to leave abundant evidence that he was a child of God. His faith, his prayer, his humility, and his brotherly love are unmistakable witnesses of the reality of his repentance. He was not a penitent in name only, but also in deed and in truth. Do not think, then, that because the penitent thief was saved, men can be saved without leaving any evidence of the Spirit's work. Consider what evidence this man left behind and take care. It's sad to hear what people sometimes say about what they call deathbed conversions. It is alarming to see how some people are satisfied by so little and how easily they can persuade themselves that their friends have gone to heaven. They will tell you when their friend or family member is dead and gone that he made such a beautiful prayer one day, or that he talked so well, or that he was so sorry for his old ways and intended to live so differently if he got better, or that he craved nothing in this world, or that he liked people to read to him and pray with him. Because they have this to go on, they seem to have a comfortable hope that he was saved. Christ may never have been named and the way of salvation may never have been even mentioned. But it doesn't matter. There was a little talk of religion, and so they are content. Now, I have no desire to hurt the feelings of anyone who reads or listens to this book, but I must and will speak plainly on this subject. Let me say that, as a general rule, nothing is so unsatisfactory as deathbed conversions. The things people say and the feelings they express when they are sick and frightened are not to be depended on. Often, too often, they are the result of fear and do not spring from the ground of the heart. Often, too often, they are things said by rote, caught from the lips of ministers and anxious friends, but evidently not felt. And nothing proves this more clearly than the well-known fact that the great majority of people who make promises of change on a sickbed, if they recover, go back to sin and the world. When a man has lived a life of thoughtlessness and folly, I want something more than a few fair words and good wishes to satisfy me about his soul when he is on his deathbed. It is not enough for me that he will let me read the Bible to him and pray by his bedside or that he says he has not thought as much as he should have of religion and he thinks he would be a different man if he got better. This does not comfort me. It does not make me feel happy about his condition. It is fine as far as it goes, but it is not conversion. It is a good thing, but it is not faith in Christ. Until I see conversion and faith in Christ, I cannot and dare not feel satisfied. Others may feel satisfied if they please, and after their friend's death they may say they hope he has gone to heaven. Personally, I would rather say nothing at all. 
I would be content with the smallest measure of repentance and faith in a dying man, even if it was no bigger than a grain of mustard seed. But to be content with anything less than repentance and faith seems to be next door to unbelief. What kind of evidence of the condition of your soul do you plan to leave behind? Follow the example of the penitent thief, and you will do well. When we have carried you to your bed, don't make us hunt up stray words and scraps of religion in order to determine that you were a true believer. Don't make us say hesitatingly to one another, I trust he is happy, he talked so nicely one day, and he seemed so pleased with a chapter in the Bible on another occasion, and he was fond of good people. Let us be able to speak decidedly about your condition. Give us standing proof of your repentance, your faith, and your holiness, so that no one will be able for a moment to question it. It is certain that without this, those you leave behind can feel no real comfort about your soul. We may use religious rituals at your burial and express charitable hopes. We may meet you at the churchyard gate and say, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, Revelation 14.13, but this will not alter your condition. If you die without conversion to God, without repentance, and without faith, your funeral will only be the funeral of a lost soul. Eternity is very close. The last lesson you are meant to learn from these verses is this. Eternity is very close to us. Today, says our Lord to the penitent thief, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke 23:43. He does not name a distant period. He does not talk of his entering into a state of happiness as a thing far away. He speaks of today, this very day in which he is hanging on the cross. How near that seems! How awfully close that word brings our everlasting dwelling place! Happiness or misery, sorrow or joy, the presence of Christ or the company of devils, all are close to us. There is but a step, says David, between me and death. 1 Samuel 20, 3. There is but a step, we may say, between ourselves and either heaven or hell. None of us realize this as we should. In this matter, it is time to step out of the dream world in which we live. We are apt to talk or think, even about believers, as if death was a long journey, as if the dying saint had embarked on a long voyage. It is all wrong, very wrong. Their harbor, their home, is close by, and they have entered in. Some of us know by bitter experience what a long and weary time it is between the death of those we love and the hour when we bury them out of sight. Such days are the slowest, saddest, and heaviest days in all our lives. But, blessed be God, the souls of departed saints are free from the very moment they draw their last breath. While we are weeping, while the coffin is being prepared, and while the last painful arrangement is being made, the spirits of our loved ones are enjoying the presence of Christ. They are freed forever from the burden of the flesh. They are where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. Job 3.17 The day that believers die, 
they are in paradise. Their battle is fought, their strife is over. They have passed through the gloomy valley that we must one day tread. They have gone over the dark river that we must one day cross. They have drunk that last bitter cup that sin has mixed for man. They have reached that place where sorrow and sighing are no more. Certainly we should not wish them back again. We should not weep for them, but for ourselves. We are warring still, but they are at peace. We are laboring, but they are at rest. We are watching, but they are sleeping. We are wearing our spiritual armor, but they have forever taken it off. We are still at sea, but they are safe in the harbor. We have tears, but they have joy. We are strangers and pilgrims, but as for them, they are at home. Surely, better are the dead in Christ than the living. The very hour the poor saint dies, he is at once higher and happier than the highest on earth. I am afraid there is an immense amount of delusion on this point. I fear that many who are not Roman Catholics and claim not to believe in purgatory still have some strange ideas in their minds about the immediate consequences of death. Many have a sort of vague notion that there is some interval or space of time between death and their eternal state. They imagine they will go through a kind of purifying change, and that though they die unfit for heaven, they will yet be found fit for it after all. But that is not true. There is no change after death. There is no conversion in the grave. There is no new heart given after the last breath is taken. The very day we go, we launch forever. The day we go from this world, we begin our eternal condition. From that day on, there is no spiritual conversion, no spiritual change. As we die, so we will receive after death. As the tree falls, so it must lie. If you are unconverted, this ought to make you think. Do you know you are close to hell? This very day you might die, and if you die outside of Christ, you will open your eyes in hell and in torment. If you are a true Christian, you are far nearer to heaven than you think. This very day, if the Lord takes you, you will find yourself in paradise. The good land of promise is near to you. The eyes that you closed in weakness and pain will open at once on a glorious rest, such as my tongue cannot describe. Let me say a few words in conclusion. This book may fall into the hands of some humble-hearted and contrite sinner. Would that be you? If so, then here is encouragement for you. See what the penitent thief did, and do the same. See how he prayed, see how he called on the Lord Jesus Christ, see what an answer of peace he obtained. Brother or sister, why should you not do the same? Why should you not also be saved? This book may fall into the hands of some proud and presumptuous person of the world. Is that you? Then take warning. See how the impenitent thief died, as he had lived, and beware lest you come to a similar end. Oh, don't be too confident, so that you do not die in your sins. Scripture, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Isaiah 55, 6. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die? Ezekiel 33, 11.
This book may fall into the hands of a professing believer in Christ. If that is you, then take the penitent thief's religion as a measure by which to prove your own. Make sure you know something of true repentance and saving faith, of real humility and fervent charity. Brother or sister, don't be satisfied with the world's standard of Christianity. Be of one mind with the penitent thief, and you will be wise. This book may fall into the hands of someone who is mourning over departed believers. If that is you, then take comfort from this scripture. Notice that your loved ones are in the best of hands. They cannot be better off. They never were so well in their lives as they are now. They are with Jesus, whom their souls loved on earth. Stop your selfish mourning, and instead rejoice that they are freed from trouble and have entered into rest. This book may be read by some aged servant of Christ. Is that you? If so, then see from these verses how near you are to home. A few more days of labor and sorrow, and the King of Kings will send for you. In a moment, your warfare will be at an end, and all will be peace.